As a heads up, today's episode gets into the topic of suicide. Nothing explicit, and it's probably not exactly what you're thinking. But if this isn't something you're up for, maybe this is one you should skip. A few hundred feet from the traffic circle on the west side of the 4th Avenue Bridge in Olympia is a time machine. Up a narrow wooded driveway is a small building, a canopy of trees overhead. Inside, the vaulted ceiling of this gabled cottage makes room for a giant window. Light from the south pours in. The view of Capitol Lake below is filtered through a curtain of maples that opens each winter. Jamie Heinricher owns this machine. The place feels a little cluttered in a cozy way, and yet things are organized. Everything in its right place. So, the only electrical thing on the press is the motor that drives the flywheel. Everything else is initiated by the motion flywheel. Steampunk Rube Goldberg device comes to mind. The black machine is big, the size of a motorcycle. A massive spinning flywheel, turned by an electric motor, holds the energy needed to get the job done. I should run this just for a second. Do you want to pump that oil? So this isn't exactly a time machine, but that is just how it feels given the setting. The machine is a Heidelberg printing press from 1950. Before laser printing and desktop computer publishing, machines like this one were how printing got done. And it goes in Basically, paper is pressed against metal lettering that's covered in ink. But that makes it sound simple. Jamie owns this press and a few others, as well as the cottage. It's all part of Sherwood Press. How this all came to be is a story that Jamie has told many times. But it can still move her to tears. And this is one of the reasons why people call it the windmill, is because these two gripper arms kind of look like a windmill. It all started when a friend kept bugging her to check out this little printing shop on the west side. It was 1989. Jamie kept putting it off until her friend just insisted. So one day I called her and asked for a tour. I brought my, my bicycle up here and I knocked on the door and she opens the door and here's this crackling fire, and here's Jocelyn with her apron and her little bolo tie and her adorable, like, sweet face and all this printing equipment and clutter and smoke and paper, and, and I just was instantly enchanted. We probably talked for, like, two hours that first time, and she just was the person that I needed in my life at that moment. Something about her and her open-mindedness and her inquisitiveness and also her contentedness with her craft. There was something so attractive about just the life she was living and the, the solitude she had in this place. But people would come and flow in and flow out, and it was very easy and relaxed, and people were always happy, and everything about it, the ink, the type, the the machines, and the sound of the machines, just, it just went straight in. I forced her to, to, I mean, I basically said, I'm going to, 
volunteer for you. And she didn't say no, so I would just keep coming back every week. Jamie was 25. She had just discovered Jocelyn Dome and the Sherwood Press. This day would change her life. Jocelyn and Jamie were compatible. Jamie says part of the glue that bonded them from the beginning was their shared atheism. We had a lot of big conversations. We, we became like best friends pretty quickly. Jamie learned all about Jocelyn's life up to that point, like how she grew up in the house just down the hill. She was one of six kids, went to Garfield Elementary. Jocelyn's family would put on Christmas caroling concerts and plays. They had a stage set up in the backyard with lights. And I guess then people in the neighborhood would walk down and watch the dome players. Jocelyn went to Olympia High School. She was gay. Jamie says that Jocelyn didn't hide who she was. But keep in mind, this was the 1930s. She was being very much herself all through high school. And she just said that people just didn't talk about it. So she sort of, it was kind of like that don't ask, don't tell thing. It's like, as long as you don't talk about it. In high school, Jocelyn was one of the yearbook editors. It's where she got some of her early experience as a printer. In fact, on the wall up there, I have the engraving of her yearbook photo from her year of graduation. I'll show this to you real quick. Um, It's so cool. She's like wearing a button-up shirt and a tie. (laughs) Oh, man. That's amazing. Can you see it? Yes. That's, That's her. So she, you can see she was presenting her own... That was high school. High school. After high school, Jocelyn went right on to the University of Washington. She majored in English. Jamie shows me some photos of Jocelyn from that time. This is her Kappa Delta, 1936. So this is the fall of 1936. She had just graduated from high school. Now she was up at UW. And, uh, you know, she went by the name Jock. It said, like, that was one of her her names. That There she is. Look at... Jocelyn, or Jock, looks comfortable standing in front of the Kappa Delta sorority. Short hair, white button-up shirt with a tie tucked into long pants. Would She had dresses and stuff, and she would sometimes wear them. It's just so amazing. And then there's her... In time, Jocelyn graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in English. She returned home to Olympia in 1940 with a plan. Jocelyn let her dad know she wanted to start a press, and he decided that it would be a generous kind thing to build her a shop. He he thought that when she got tired of printing, it would just be a guest house on the property, and that, you know, they would... So he was building it with the thought that they would eventually have a guest house. But she just never got tired of it. Just up the hill from her childhood home, Jocelyn and her dad made a little clearing. Together they built this cottage. At first, Sherwood Press wasn't a full-time job. She actually had a job at a title company also. And um, she was, during the war, I think she was kind of working at the title company and then coming up here and running small jobs. Business steadily grew until one evening in the mid-40s, as the story goes, she was bicycling to the print shop after working at the title company, and she fell asleep en route. That's when she decided to focus on printing. 
she was very diligent about being in business. She loved being a business owner and she took it very seriously. As the years passed, Jocelyn developed a steady clientele, jobs of all sizes. Remember, those were the days when any printing that wasn't hand-lettered or typed on a typewriter was made on a press. From wedding announcements and political flyers to the more mundane, like this placard that Jamie shows me. It says in large, bold type, this is our disposal unit. No funeral, no service. So I guess it would go on the the um, dumpster outside of probably Mills and Mills funeral home, and it's saying if you're not if you if you're not having a funeral, you can't use this dumpster. Oh, okay, okay. Complete price two hundred ten and cremation or cemetery charges, meaning like in case you're interested. Okay. <laughs> this is That's what, this is what, it's a weird place to advertise. Don't use our. <laughs> Don't use our dumpster, but hey, this is an opportunity. <laughs> Jocelyn kept a copy of every print job she did. It adds up to a pretty so impressive history of Olympia in the second half of the 20th century. In her 20s, Jocelyn met the first true love of her life, Inez Clare. They were together for about eight years before Inez unexpectedly died from respiratory problems. Jocelyn eventually found love again. Marjorie Sayer was out from the East Coast, visiting mutual friends of Jocelyn's. The two fell in love, and Marjorie, who was engaged to be married, canceled her plans. She moved out west. Jocelyn and Marjorie made a life and a home together. They lived by the water near Priest Point Park. They were charter members of the Masterworks Choral Ensemble. Both were involved in politics with the League of Women Voters. They protested the Vietnam War. Jocelyn traveled the world once going to Korea as a peace ambassador. Like in high school, Jocelyn didn't hide who she was, but she didn't talk about being gay, even in her later years to Jamie, one of her closest friends. It may sound very strange, and it is strange to think about, that in the, in the 14 years that I volunteered for her, she never just came out and said she was gay. It was obvious, and I went to her house and for dinner, you know, frequently, and we were very close, but it just wasn't something she liked to talk about. And I think she was concerned about how it would affect business, to tell you the truth. I do know that she did some printing for more politically minded activists for LGBTQ causes. By the time Jamie walked through the door of the Sherwood Press for the first time, it was 1989. Jocelyn was 70 years old. She'd been running the business for nearly 50 years. I knew that it was probable she would have a plan for the end of her life within the first few weeks of knowing her. We spent tons of time together and lots of, lots of conversation. And maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but I think she was preparing me from that early Um, time in our relationship because she wanted me to know that she believed in death with dignity. Those were the early days of attempts to legalize some sort of physician-assisted dying in Washington state. And she wanted to make sure that I totally understood that she believed in it. And I believed in it too. But at the time, it was very theoretical. I didn't see 
how that would become such a central experience between us. As the years went by, Jamie kept volunteering at the press. She took on more responsibilities and learned the nuts and bolts of the machinery and the craft. Her friendship deepened with this woman, 45 years her senior. They shared a sense of humor. I think we both have a have the tendency to see absurdity in things. And so we talked a lot about that and laughed at people, laughed at institutions and the way that things are because they are so crazy. I feel like part of our shared humor was that kind of, um, yeah, is a pressure release. So I don't see these labeled at all and I can't, how do you? Oh, it's just a layout. It's a standard, this is called a uh, California job case. I've asked Jamie to show me how she sets up type to be pressed. Just like a typewriter, it's a it's a specific lay of where the letters and symbols go I that see. you just memorize. Yeah. We're at a cabinet of shallow drawers filled with metal lettering. Do you like Futura? This is what I have in here. Sure. I have a lot of type, but most of it's in other places. She's loading each letter okay. onto a clamping tray. She calls it a stick. Would you like upper and lower case? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie pulls each letter from unlabeled bins within the drawer. So it has to be backwards. Yes, right. it's backwards. backwards and... It's upside down. And it actually goes left to right as normal. The bottom is the top. And it's left to right. Mm-hmm. Uppercase, lowercase, punctuation different font sizes, different fonts. This is the painstaking and meticulous way that things used to be printed. Jocelyn Dome was meticulous. She took pride in it. She'd write formal, multiple-paragraph letters to the editor when her favorite publications made typographical errors. Jamie knew this, and she began to think about what things would be like when Jocelyn couldn't keep up. About eight years into my friendship with her, she was 78. I was really worried about what was going to happen to her and to this place because she didn't have a plan. It sort of made me very sad to think of her having to close it or sell the place or the equipment or retire. And so it took me eight years, well, first of all, to even decide that I would want to because that was a really hard decision to even decide I would say it to her because I didn't want to say it to her unless I was ready to commit to it. So I took a long time to decide that I would offer, but I didn't know if she would accept me. I remember it so well because I was terrified. I was so nervous that I could feel my heart beating in my throat talking to someone about something like that is like saying, hey, when you die, what's going to happen? It's not something easy to bring up with someone. And this place was hers. It was her craft, her stuff, her place. She was standing in front of the fire right there, and I was standing on this side of the composing stone. And it was we're vaguely on the subject of the future. And I just kind of said, 
So, you know how when you're really nervous, you can't, your voice isn't quite working? <laughs> I was kind of like, well, I was wondering <laughs> if I might be your successor. <laughs> and I look over at her and she didn't say anything immediately, but she smiled and then she said, that's what I've always wanted. And I just like cry. <laughs> Jamie and Jocelyn would have six more years together. Increasingly, Jamie took on more of the work. Jocelyn was having more and more trouble being meticulous. She had macular degeneration and she was really upset about it because as a printer, you know, if you can't see the minute quality of your printing, it's just impossible to do it. So, um, I was kind of an extra set of eyes, and um, I helped her with the mundane things of keeping this place going, help her order paper, cut paper, sweep, clean. I, ran, I set and ran jobs for her while she sat in a chair that used to sit in front of the fire. All the while, Jocelyn kept dropping hints, like a booklet she left where Jamie was sure to come across it. Instructions for how to end your own life. She could also be more direct. It was my birthday, and it was probably three years before she died. And she took me to birthday lunch, and we were sitting there having this nice time. And she just looked across at me, and she said, I just want you to know, I, I'm sorry, I'm just going <laughs> to, it's really sad and wonderful. <laughs> it's just, she just... Okay. Take your time. She was so wonderful. She was so gracious. So she she looked across the table and she said, "I just want you to know, I would not be sorry to die." And I looked at her and I was like, "What?" And she said, "I just want you to know." I would not be sorry to die. And I, we didn't talk anymore about it right then, but she just wanted me to know that if it happened, she would welcome it. And I never heard that from anyone in my life. In Jocelyn's final years, she did things to help Jamie and Sherwood Press handle a transition of management. She would order certain supplies that are sort of hard to come by. She was kind of taking extra time to teach me about certain things like her paper suppliers or, you know, just some of the things that I wasn't really that involved in in the, in the business and showing me the books. In Jocelyn's final days, Jamie still wasn't able to talk directly to her about what she thought was imminent. She watched Jocelyn reach out to old friends and settle things that were unsettled. At that point, it was October. Jocelyn had a birthday. She was turning 85. Jamie baked a cake. She had Jocelyn and her partner Marjorie over, as well as other friends. They watched a VHS tape made from 8mm highlights of Jocelyn's childhood. Family trips to Mount Rainier and the Dome Players on stage. Then one Friday... I really knew it that day. She made it really obvious. 
my son was in school, so he was going to get off at 2.30 or whatever. And I thought, well, it's a Friday and I'm going to go to lunch and then have to get Parker. So I told her I would just leave for the day around noon. And she, she stood here and she said, well, you better give me a hug then. She had never asked me for a hug in 14 years. Never. We did hug regularly, but that was really stood out. And so I wasn't quite convinced of anything. So I, I left for lunch and on the way walking from my car into the restaurant, I just started bawling my head off. And I sat with my friend um, and I said, I think this is happening. Over lunch, Jamie decided that she had to go back. She picked up her son and returned to the shop. Jocelyn had a visitor. Jamie anxiously waited for him to leave. When he finally left, Jamie and Jocelyn began setting up things for the following week, but couldn't find one of the scheduled jobs. And I said, I can't find it, but I said, we'll find it on Monday. And she said, that's right, you'll find it on Monday. So I'm thinking, okay, this is, we're not talking about this. This is not a conversation about what's happening, but there's heavy messaging going on. And I am being this chicken shit. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm not talking about it. And I couldn't. And I think because she wasn't talking about it, I sort of felt like I needed to follow her lead. If she wasn't going to talk about it, I wasn't going to talk about it. Five o'clock came around and we started locking up. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is her last time at the Sherwood Press. I felt like I was trespassing on this moment that was like so important. But it was also possibly my last moment with this woman that I cared about so much. And that was right here. Right here. So we walked out and she actually went over to Parker and she tousled his hair and she said, it's been good to know you. And I just was, I was, my heart was racing. I, I, I had no time to reflect on like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go throw my arms around her and say, please don't do this. Um, or I love you. Or I just didn't, I felt, like I felt like I was in this stuck in amber. Like I was, I didn't know what to say. I was, I was in, I was terrified. But we went, I went, I walked her over to her car and she got in her van. And I, <laughs> absurdly, I kind of looked through her open window and I said, well, I'll see you later. And as I was kind of pulling out, uh, I saw her get out of her van and come back in the press. And that is that moment, almost more than anything, kind of told me what was happening. She probably needed 
to say goodbye to this place where she had spent 63 years in her work. Jocelyn ended her life that following Sunday in 2003. She was 85. Days later, they held a memorial service. Jocelyn had typed up a message to be read aloud. Marjorie, her partner of over 50 years, did the honors. You may know that for some time, probably since reaching 80, longevity has not been high on my list of lifetime priorities. Therefore, my demise, whenever it came, was not unwelcome. Were I a believer, I would indubitably describe the many pluses of my journey through life as blessings. As it is, my long and generally contented existence, I attribute to great good fortune. It started with having most supportive and loving parents. Another serendipitous happening was taking up a craft that has provided a modest but fulfilling occupation. And in leaving the Sherwood Press in the hands of such a wonderful successor as Jamie Heinrecker. Twice I have been privileged to share my life for long intervals with a close and caring companion. Always have there been many friendships forged along the way. Always has there been music, either participated in or enjoyed as a listener. For many years, there was the relishing of saltwater swimming as the seasons permitted. Never a significant contributor to the world's well-being, I believe I was successful in making being with me a pleasant experience. I guess that's my valedictory. Sixteen years after Jocelyn's death, Jamie still operates Sherwood Press. She's added a couple machines to keep the business relevant. The big black Heidelberg Press sits exactly where it always has. Another machine that hasn't changed is Jocelyn's old answering machine. Once in a while, when she wants to hear her old friend, Jamie pulls it out, plugs it in, and goes back in time. Thank you, Jamie Heinricker, for being so open with this story. Thanks also to Max DeJarnett, who told me that I should visit the Sherwood Press. Jen Hamilton was the voice actor that read Jocelyn's Valedictory. Thanks, Jen. At WelcomeToOlympia.com, you can see a photo of Jocelyn in front of her sorority in 1936. I'll also have a link to the Sherwood Press's site, where you can see other photos and check out the variety of services they offer. 
Music today was from the 1983-84 season of Olympia's Masterworks Choral Ensemble. This included Jocelyn and her partner Marjorie. They were tenors. The piece was Gloria in Excelsis' Movement from Vivaldi's Gloria in D. Music Jamie says Jocelyn loved, even if, as an atheist, the lyrics made her cringe. Thanks to Gary Whitley for making that recording available. Additional music today by Blue Dot Sessions. Ending theme music is by Olympia's own Skrill Meadow. Mark Lee Morrison of Skrill Meadow has a podcast of his own. It's called Low Profile. He and his guests talk about and reach out to musicians that should have made it big, but never really got the credit they deserved. My favorite episode is the one on Margot Gurian. This is the last episode of season one. I'll be back in two to three months with season two. I already have some stories in the works, but I'd love to hear your story ideas. Go to welcometoolympia.com and hit the contact button. You may also feel like hitting the support button. That's where you can make financial contributions, big or small, to support this podcast. Thanks for telling your friends about this show. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. That way you won't miss the next episode. The last thing I'll mention is Keepsake Audio. Some of you have noticed that this podcast is produced by Keepsake Audio. That's me. Well, that's my business. I make audio biographies of people's lives, usually people in their later years. Keepsakeaudio.com if you want to learn more. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Smith. Talk soon. <laughs>